Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm the DJ, the MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who considers himself one of the pretty things and wants to remind his children, don't you know you're driving your mama and papa insane? Here's my co-host from the left coast, Wayne Fugate. Hola, Ben. I mean... So for this episode, we have a very special guest. If you are alive in the 90s, you absolutely know her work. Her most recent record is called A Simple Trick to Happiness, which we're going to talk about. Please welcome to the podcast, Lisa Loeb. Hello. Hello. And last but not least, so he's the host of his own podcast called Who Did It First? We yes. he, he had to join this episode because he reminded me that it was his idea to invite Lisa onto the podcast. So <laughs> welcome back, Jeff Johnson. Hello. Thanks for having me, Ben. You know you would have been in trouble if I wasn't on this one. I um, know. I you know, know. You know I wouldn't have let you live it down. So uh, I appreciate being here. And we weren't about to sideline Wayne for this episode because as oh. soon as we found out the, uh, the album choice from Lisa... Um, he pretty much told me that he was going to, um, yeah, a a pack of diamond dogs couldn't have kept me away. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, we, uh, we start all of our episodes with the all important question. Um, let's start with Wayne. What t-shirt are you wearing? I am wearing the only David Bowie t-shirt that I haven't worn on this podcast. Uh, it just says Bowie and it's him and he's got some crazy glasses on. This looks like maybe a thin white Duke era. Fantastic. All right. How about you, Lisa? What what t-shirt are you wearing? I have a shirt that I got last September in Japan from one of my favorite designers. I say designer, but she's like a cool designer, not like uh, couture. And she has cool t-shirts. And so she has a lot of different clothes, but the one I'm wearing, it says, our life is our art. And then underneath that, in much smaller letters, it says, if being an egomaniac means, I'm reading this upside down on my body right now as I'm talking about (laughs) tiny, tiny type, sans serif. If being an egomaniac means I believe in what I do and in my art or music, then in that respect, you can call me that. I believe in what I do and I'll say it. So- it's it's Excellent. it's not totally classic Japanese T-shirt, but it's it's pretty classic and it's very bold and it reminds people that our life is our art. Love it. Nice. All right, Jeff, how about you? What, what T-shirt are you wearing? I went meta because of the uh, Andy Warhol mm. uh, song on the album. So you know the triple Elvis uh, picture. I have uh, I have a Harrison Ford T-shirt. Yes, him as Deckard, him as uh, Indiana Jones, and him as Han Solo. So that's Excellent. the that's T-shirt nice. I'm wearing. Did it, was that the one somebody made recently? Uh, I have a friend who was on Facebook who said I, I I needed this Han Solo shirt, so I had it made. I had I I got it a couple of years ago on one of the novelty sites, so I'm not I'm not sure. It's been a couple of years since I've had this one, but it has that very Andy Warhol look to it with him standing yeah. in that same pose. Yes, you know that uh, Elvis is. So I love this shirt. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm wearing one of my Bowie shirts, and mm-hmm. it's uh it's actually the Aladdin Sane Ziggy Sardust uh era it's one of my my favorites awesome all right um so so last year jeff and i were talking about who i should invite onto the podcast we were kind of brainstorming on you know who i needed to bring on and he adamantly brought your name up a number of times lisa and awesome um, I am a i i'm a fanboy although at at almost 46 boy seems odd uh i tried (laughs) I tried fan, fan man, but that sounds like a rejected uh, like uh, comic book character. So I don't know what that makes me, Lisa. Um, 
just <laughs> en- I just have enjoyed your work uh, since I heard it in Reality Bites in what oh, 94, 94. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And I have to admit, I kind of lost track of you over the last decade. So um, it was nice to kind of go back and rediscover some of your records, um, including some some kids' records during that time period. Yes, a lot of kids' records. They're super fun. They are. Yeah. They're like it's it's more like family friendly music. I think you guys probably would have the same. Like, like I started making kids' music not necessarily for kids. It was more because I was really nostalgic about my own childhood. Yeah. And, um, you know, like the early Sesame Streets and Steve Martin and old um, variety shows like like Carol Burnett's show, things where Fernwood Tonight, where, where sort of the line between grown-up and kids' entertainment was blurred. And especially a lot of the kids' entertainment, specifically Free to Be You and Me and um, the early Sesame Streets, there was a lot of um, – like parody of grown up, oh, parody of grown up stuff. Sorry, my husband just brought me some pizza crusts. Uh, I, I asked for the, the I asked for the pizza crusts if the kids weren't going to eat them. Um, so I, there's a lot of parody going on back there, and very clever and dry, but funny and sweet and humorous. And I wanted to make stuff like that. It's almost like musical theater, but not. But it's not like your typical love song that you write right out of college. So I, I wanted to make stuff like that. And then then later, much later, I had kids, and I realized. I I got a little bit more information about them. I still mostly make the kids music because of my nostalgia for that feeling like dynamite dynamite magazine. There was a cartoon called bummer and like mad magazine, just like that, that kind of offbeat 1970s, but mainstream thing that was happening at the time. I want to make stuff like that. I haven't heard anybody bring up dynamite. (laughs) That is so hanging out with the wrong people. Yeah, I guess. I would compare. I would compare your music, uh, the kids' music, call it kids' music, the same way Pixar movies are kids' movies, in that there's just a little yeah. bit more depth depth to it, and uh, it, it's something more that everybody can kind of get something out of. There's there's something there for the whole family. Yeah, and I know for myself, and I'm sure for a lot of other musicians, it's just it's a different place to go. You know, like I, I love romantic comedies, and I love some action adventure movies and stuff, but it's fun to do something that is just in a different category. And like you said, with movies like Shrek or I don't know, a lot of the kids movies or Lego, the Lego movie is a good example. It just, you get to go different places and tell stories in a different way. And it's so much fun to do that. I'm still waiting for an artist to do a, an album of songs that were featured on zoom. Do you oh. remember Zoom? Yeah, Zuma, 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 ah, Zuma. Yeah. I'm Bernadette. Yeah, I'm trying to think what songs they had. Because I remember like Electric Company, they did songs like like the one where they did the beginnings and the ends of the words. Like, yeah. like I, I I was going to say shh, because that was always one of them, but I can only think of a joke when, and this is right. PG-13. But like <laughs> the Electric Company song, um, I know the song from Zoom, but what other songs did they do? They had like the grab bag, like the mail and- yes. Uh, I, I don't remember because it's been forever since I've I've watched a full episode, but somebody posted on Facebook the other day and they're like, you remember this? Yes, I'm like, exactly. holy crap. Yes, I remember that. And when you hear Zoom, that's what you think of is those big letters and like WGBH, um, like, oh, two, one, three, four, send it to uh-huh. Zoom, like with the Boston accent. Yep. That yeah. Totally. I do remember I started eating fish, I think because of Zoom. Because I think it was in Zoom. They it was so great. They had they would have these like documentary shorts. I might be com- 
confusing yeah. with Sesame Street. But yep, I feel like they were right. shooting like some kids fishing. Like there's not a lot of words. They're just doing an activity and you feel like you're there and they're, it's like gleaming sunlight and like a bubbling brook and they're fishing and then they catch a fish and they pack it in clay. They put it in the middle of like two clay patties kind of, and then they cook it over a fire and then they open it up and it's this like white flaky fish. And it was like, that was always something that made me think, Ooh, I really like fish. I should eat fish. So that was a good thing. There we go. There we go. Yeah. But so, you know, it's like those, you get this feeling of kind of, there's something whimsical and very serious and very uh, in the moment and intimate, but sometimes exaggerated at the same time. Just a lot of things that you don't necessarily get with music as a singer songwriter. Yeah. I I was listening to one of the records um, earlier in the week. I got some funny looks from my teenager when I was playing it. (laughs) And I don't know if it was, I think it was either Father Abraham or Do You Hear Sing Low or so that I got the funniest looks. But the the children's songs records, those aren't just covers. Like I found myself singing Going Away a few different times this week, which that's yours, yeah. right? Yeah, we wrote Going Away, The Disappointing Pancake, songs like Monster Stomp, Opposite Day. I mean... And we do have references, like in one part in a song called um, Everybody Dreams, it's about all the different animals. In the middle, you get to this part. It's somewhere between Bowie and, um, uh, who are those guys from New Zealand? Um, Flight of the Concords? Flight of the Concords. Of course, they did a Bowie parody as well, but there's a whole section that's like our Bowie section. So yeah. so we get to have fun references in the songs also, and a lot of wordplay. Um, but I do have like, I don't know, 10, 15 children's rec- records, a lot of them. Do pandas dream in colors and peacocks in black and white? If the jellyfish dreams of peanut butter, do starfish dream of night? Dream of night. Last night I had this crazy dream. I was wondering what it means. Yeah. There was a spaceman here. Was looking at me. I love this rocket ship into the tiny window of my superstar golden van. Yeah. Everybody dreams. Everybody dreams. Did you do a John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt on one of them? No, but I think I'm gonna. I'm working on a new record, and I'm thinking about adding that. I'm also thinking about adding T for two with a tap dance solo. I know you're waiting. Nice. You're waiting. You're waiting for that I, one. We all yeah. wanted that. How yeah, about Ravioli? Have you done Ravioli? I don't know Ravioli. Oh, that's that's a Boy Scout song, isn't it, Jack? Oh, yeah. yeah. See, that's the thing, too. Like, you go to Boy Scouts or you, you go to summer camp, and there are these songs that you learn. You might be four years old, or you might be 15 years old, or you might be a counselor or a grown-up, and you still have this connection to it. It's the weirdest thing. And like, those are the songs that I just love so much. And I love songs with a lot of words or songs that make you want to cry because it's like the last day of camp. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's, you know, I love puzzles and I love working with others and trying to puzzle together these songs that mean a lot to us in different ways, whether it's because there's certain values that are important to us, like being kind to others um, or respecting others or uh, trying to create 
like I love this author named Judith Viorst, who you would know. She did um, Alexander and the No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you read it now, it's that same exact thing. You read it and you're, it's just a well-written book with really great illustrations. Yes, you read it. You start reading it when you're like four or five years old, but it's still just a really great book. But it does have this certain tone. And to try to get that tone in a song, we did a song called um, – you have it in you and it's about going to school for the first day, but it really has that dynamite magazine bummer cartoon feeling or the Judith Viorst cartoon feeling where there's a lot of, ah, you know, you hear it also in, um, in like, uh, some of the schoolhouse rock tone, you know, the tone yeah. of those things just yeah. to be able to create that tone is just like a big goal of mine. So. Well, it's paid off. You've won a Grammy for the, for, for, yes, for at least one of them that I, yes. Know. Exactly. That was very exciting. And you mentioned camp and, and the songs from camp. And that's one of the things that you've done as well as created a, you have a, a foundation, right? The Camp Lisa Foundation. Yes. I, when I made my record, my second kid's record, which is called Camp Lisa, um, I, somebody, I talked to somebody like a fortune teller, weird. He's not weird, but he's like a, he's a fort. He's, he's, he reads your sign. I don't even know what it's called. Like that, that's how much I'm into that kind of stuff, but he reads your whatever and tells you things about yourself based your, on when you're your, born. Your what is that? Like your shock or your cards or whatever, but he's really nice. He, we actually have the same birthday, this guy and I, and I, for a while I was talking to him every year on my birthday. I thought, well, that's kind of a fun thing to do. And he mentioned to me, um, something about an author. Is it the guy who wrote Peter Pan, maybe who donated all the proceeds from, I think that book to, to children. And I, and it inspired me to donate my, my projects, uh, any, you know, any income we make off of the project, any of the proceeds of the record go to send. I wanted us to help children, not just make music for children. And I realized also, uh, we wanted to make a TV show. My, my collaborators and I wanted to make a summer camp TV show so kids could see what it's like to go to summer camp, much like we're talking about zoom or some of these shows where you would see things and think, Oh, I've never been there before. Like you you felt really interested by seeing it. And then I realized that, uh, a, we, we couldn't get a TV show on uh, TV at the time about camp, but B, the best way to experience camp would be for kids to actually go to camp. So we started a foundation to help send kids to camp, kids who would normally not be able to afford to go to summer camp and sleepaway camp. And we work with an organization on the East Coast called Scope, who already knows how to pick really great, safe camps um, and kids who really need that experience. So um, yeah, we so I started the Camp Lisa Foundation to do that. And we still send kids to camp, not a lot this summer, but uh, in general, we we continue to raise money and look out for these kids who get to go to camp and um, give them an experience that's different from what they've had before. And you know, summer camp is so great; it it really helps you become more independent. For some kids, it's the first time they've been really in nature at all. Um, you know, it's not camping; it's still camp, but you get to be a part of a community and learn to be a great leader. And I, I just I, you try things you have never tried; it's really fun. So. Camp is super important to me. So I was so happy I got to start that foundation and we continue to try to make it grow. That's very cool. That's great. I always wanted to go to camp because I watch meatballs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, right? I, I, it took me a while to see meatballs, but yeah, I mean, there's the full range of camp. The, it's the whole gamut, the 1970s yeah. and early 80s version of camp and all the, that kind of meatballs experience, right. um, which is fun though. You know, it's like, it's, it's everything. I love yeah. camp. Yeah. So, um, so we had Lee Nash of Sixpence None the Richer on an episode last year, and I asked her, um, "So, are you sick of questions about Kiss Me?" Uh, and uh, so, so are you sick of questions about Stay? 
No, I'm, I am so, you know, as a music fan, you know, we're about to talk about one of my favorite musicians. There are certain things I want to know and certain things I'm interested in. And, and for certain people, there are certain songs that stand out the most. And, you know, especially after having done this for a really long time, you know, over 30, 40 years, um, to, to be able to have a song or two songs or three songs or however many like that, it's great. It's really, I, I really appreciate it. And although, yes, there's a lot of other music that I've made that I really want people to to engage with and listen to, um, I'm also really proud of that song. So, and it's got a really interesting story. So. Let's, well, all right. So what's well, the tell it. story? Yeah. <laughs> well, which part do you want to know about the story? So, I mean. So, so you kind of, I kind of looked at that, that song as that kind of ushered in a whole a bunch of different singer songwriters because look early nineties was you were either grunge or you were like really sappy poppy music, like color me bad type of music. Right. Like know? top 40, what was top yeah. 40 at the time? Yeah, yes. exactly. So, so ha- hearing that song and it having its own really big moment that kind of ushered in like Sarah McLaughlin was already, you know, known and Indigo girls were already known, but I felt like it just, you know, exploded from there. Yeah. I think what really happened was a lot of people were already doing music like that. And in retrospect, I think a lot of us were doing all different types of music, even though, and I'm saying us meaning women um, and guys, I mean, there, there became a lot, a big group of musicians like gin blossoms, Goo Goo Dolls, although they were more of a hard rock band, uh, punky rock band who got popular for more acoustic ballads, kind of. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. I think there were a lot of musicians out there doing it. And what happened specifically for the women was that radio stations weren't really playing um, more than a couple of women at a time. You know, it was like, oh, we can't play you. We're playing Cheryl Crow. Oh, we play Sarah McLaughlin. You know, it was like an either or kind of situation. But I think at that time, there was, there was, you know, things ebb and flow and what's popular ebbs and flows. But I think there was that real kind of adult contemporary and, and, and pop music happening. You know, your Mariah Carey's and R. Kelly, I I don't even know what R. Kelly sounds like, but that name for me, (laughs) it's like in there, you know, big Aerosmith songs, which I love, you know, like Jamie, uh, not Jamie's crying, like, um, Jamie's Jamie's got a gun, uh, that yeah, Jamie's crying. crying. Van Halen, but um, but anyway, there. I think that people liked hearing these stories and these songs. Um, they had a different tone. They had a different instrumentation and production. I was lucky because um, my music was different in the context in which it was being heard, so it stood out. You know, again, it was on pop radio, which was a weird place to be, and I was in a weird place because I came from being an indie. I was a singer songwriter, but not folk. I felt like I needed to prove that I wasn't folk. I had my band name so people knew that I was a band, not like a girl with a guitar, even though I was a girl with a guitar, but I was not folk, which is funny because now that's sort of one of my goals is to be, I like the folkness of things. I like telling stories and playing my guitar and singing. But at the time I'm like, no, I listened to Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and David, you you, you know, can't you hear on David Bowie how there's so much acoustic guitar or Led Zeppelin, but it's also super rock or, you know, Queen or anybody, all my heroes, um, Elton John. But anyway, I think a lot of us were doing that. So I think it just stood out at the time. The music video I made stood out at the time. It was exciting that Ethan Hawke directed it. That was a cool part of the story. It was all done in one take. Um, I wasn't playing acoustic guitar, which was a little hard for me because I had to prove it 
for many, many years to say like, I really am a songwriter and I'm really a musician and I've really been doing this for like, yeah. you know, since I was a little kid writing music, I'm not like a pop singer who, who came out of the air and this is the first thing I've ever done. So that was a little frustrating. Um, but you know what? It really doesn't matter. That It doesn't matter for real audiences. It doesn't matter. What it did matter though for was 1990s critics, music critics. They were so rude at the time. They were like out of control. And in fact, since then, even just in the last six months, I've had two different prominent music critics apologize to me for the reviews they gave to me because they, it, they said it was really out of line. The The kind of review, reviews they gave were really out of line and they felt they had something to prove and they were in their early, you know, mid-20s or whatever and and they thought they needed to be snarky um, and it was not a fair review. So it's interesting to hear that after the fact. But I feel like... Um, Otherwise, audiences, they don't, you know, audiences don't care uh, the different types of genre or, it, and it's, that's even magnified now. You see people, there's like this new indie quality to super pop music, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I know, you know, these boy bands or I know Beyonce's music. It, it's it's this interesting thing. So really when it comes down to it, being able to connect to fans and have a song that really connects to people and it's, it's the... Uh, what is it called? Like the, when people are vegetarians and they have bacon, it's the, uh, it's the, what is that called? The something meat, the, it's the, uh, the gateway. It's the gateway. meat. You know, it's like the song stay will be like, Oh yeah, I'll come to her concert. She had that song from 1994. And then they come to the show and they're like, Oh my gosh, I like the disappointing pancake and the new songs from your new record. So that's fine. You know, it's the gateway meat. So stay is, so stay is like bacon is what you're stay saying. Stay is like bacon. It's the gateway <laughs> right. meat. It's well, the explains- thing that people are look forward to. They, they smell it in the house cooking and they're like, I got to go all. check that out. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's how I, that's how I got there then. Uh, I will say like, also, Stay like unlike I, I wrote a song called I Do years later <clears throat> that was yep. also top twenty on the charts, but I have a I have more of a connection to Stay. It was more of a typical song I would write. Which once we get to Bowie, you'll see like just a weird structure, no real chorus, a lot of different perspectives on one situation, which was also unusual in the nineties. I think a lot of the women coming out were Alanis Morissette and other musicians who would write songs that had one very strong through line specific point of view. And I was more like the Woody Allen of girl singer songwriters, a very neurotic, like, well, what about this? Well, oh, I bet I could have thought about it that way. You know, like there's many yeah. perspectives in one song, which is very typical for me. And reality bites uh, also kind of touched on something at the time, I think for a lot of people that were that age at the time. And so being included on that, uh, put it out to a, a lot of different ears, I think. Right. And again, even that was unusual because even Ethan Hawke, who was in the movie and all of our friends in New York who were writers and musicians and artists and playwrights, and we were all hanging out, we were working our butts off. Like it was, we were not slackers. Like that was the farthest thing from us. So it was funny to be sort of representative of the X generation, generation X, mm-hmm. when, when for us, our generation was really full of people just working really hard to, to make things and do things and, you know, get them out there. And, uh, you know, one thing, just an aside on, on Reality Bites that I thought was interesting is uh, it's one of the early things you saw the Steve Zahn character, the storyline with him in terms of LGBTQ stuff, yes. that conversation, it was kind of out of left field when it comes up and, but it wasn't something that was happening in a lot of films at the time. So it was a little, little ahead of its time in that way. And then that of, of course ties into like the, the music video and the song that you have off of your most recent album as well. Um, yeah. Well, I'm so excited to have a new album out. I've been making so many kids' records, and I keep meaning to, I kept meaning to make a grown-up record, and I kept getting sidetracked by <laughs> TV projects and 
uh, I wrote a kids musical with some friends that was off Broadway in New York, a, a summer camp musical. J- just there was one thing after the other, and then oh well, I'm going to make a record to put out with Amazon at Nursery Rhymes, and we're going to make thirty videos for that. Oh, but then Amazon wants another record. Okay, we'll make another kids record and make another, you know, ten videos. Oh, but we need another Amazon record and another twelve videos. And finally, it was like, wait a minute, let's make a grown up record. So I made a record called A Simple Trick to Happiness. Um, and it came out right before lockdown. It came out right at the end of February. Yeah. Um, maybe when we should have already been in lockdown and we did not know that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's real and it's really good. I really, really oh, enjoy absolutely. it. And I'm glad I'm glad that you dove back in to doing an adult record as much as I like the other stuff that you've done in, in terms of family stuff too, but this is a really good record. So thank you so much. Doing the kids' music really influenced the grown-up records too, because collaborating with other people I found to be really fun. And so I collaborate on this new record and also figuring out kind of what, what are you talking about? And as a grown up, I know we've all seen a lot of our favorite musicians kind of fall off the deep end when they get to be grown ups. You're like, Oh, why are they writing those terrible songs? Um, you know, they're so boring because they're collaborating. And sometimes it's hard to find your voice when you're collaborating because you're in the middle of your busy life. But for me, I found such great collaborators that we can sit and sort of figure out I really, really wanted to write something that was personal, which is unusual for me. I started off really trying to write things that were more abstract and, uh, you know, you couldn't tell exactly what I was talking about. But through writing kids' music, I realized having a message or having a story was important. And I feel like we did that on this record and we're able to get that that same place of being sort of abstract, but really telling a story and having a lot of variety on the record and taking it seriously and not being embarrassed that like, this is who I am and this is how old I am. This is what's, what's going on with me. And I think that was also reinforced by being a parent. You know, I'm a parent of two kids before COVID we'd all hang out outside the school waiting to go pick up our kids. And all these kind of conversations you realize are so important, that connection to others, hearing each other talk, finding out what's important to the other, what, what other people are going through, what you're going through. And a lot of that is really on the record, which is why I called it a simple trick to happiness. Cause I felt like, you actually can get some kind of engaging conversation and happiness by realizing that you're going through things that other people are going through. And if you express yourself, other people can connect to that. Um, it's also tongue in cheek because like there is no simple trick to anything, but um, it was, it was really nice to be able to make the grown up record. Yeah. One of the few questions I have here is, so Lisa, what is the simple trick? <laughs> well, uh, we'll, Whoop. Well, yeah, talking to each other. Question. Talking, no, but like I, I do have it in my song for the birch, which is one of the songs on the record, yeah. and and it's inspired by the idea of a of a relative who grew up in the early 1900s. This generation of women who are very just no nonsense, like you know, you're something terrible happens, you pick your pick it pick up your what do you? I don't even know what that phrase is. Pick up your feet, pick up your whatever, and move along. You know, just keep going. Bootstraps. Bootstraps, yeah pick, yeah. pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just let's go. Let's keep moving. Very no, no nonsense. And at the same time, sometimes you just got to sit down and put your feet up and say, like, I got to take a break for a minute. I got to talk to somebody about what's going on. And I think those things, that connection with others, you know, both having um, a lot of inside strength, inside light, inside, you know, having your own strength to continue to move on to have another day, which is another song on my record called Another Day. Um it, you you have to have that, but you also have to sometimes take a break and 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 look at your life and and take a minute. So I think those two things are are good simple tricks to happiness. Yeah, for the birches, that's my favorite song on the record. Oh, thank you. Made me cry. 
Ah, see, that's good. And that's funny. People have been saying to me, oh my God, this is the most depressing record. It makes me so, so emotional. And other people say, oh my God, this is the most uplifting record. But I do feel like it's somewhere in the middle because that's- It's in the middle. I think you should be able to go through your emotions, right? And then get on the other side of them and say, okay, well then what can we do? How can I look at this in a different way? Yeah. Which works perfectly for COVID times, which is so strange too, because it was written before that. Totally. Yeah. I was going to say, so the, the lyric in for the birch that just kind of hit me was the, some days are out of focus. Someday, sometimes you can't explain there's a bigger picture outside the frame. Like that just kind of summarizes 2020 for me. Oh yeah. Seriously. It really does. So it touched a nerve. So thank you. Thank you. Some days you're out of focus. Sometimes you can't explain. There's a bigger picture outside the frame. When you're too stuck in it, you can't see beyond it. Take a slow minute. Remember life goes on. Kick off your Mary Janes and your coat and gloves and hang your hat. It doesn't matter where. Come sit beside me and we can talk about it. Wish that I could go back there. Jeff, what? How about you? What uh, what songs from Simple Trick have, have hit you? Um, again, I, I really enjoy the album, and I, I enjoy the things that you've always done, which is that real clever turn of phrase. Um, going back to things like the time between meeting and finally leaving is sometimes called falling in love. That I I loved that. I thought that was the the coolest thing in terms of how <laughs> you phrase that. And I, I've always loved the storytelling. The songs that stuck out to me the most on this, uh, you, the, the turn of phrase in I Want to Go First and all the clever ways of putting that sort of trepidation about not wanting to be the one left behind shows that, you know, again, that's an adult theme. That's something as as we grow up and get older, um, yes. we think about a, a little differently. So that's one of them. And then- um, Oh, thank you. The song that my parents are like, you're putting that on the record? <laughs> I love it's it. It's really <laughs> depressing. And I'm like, it's supposed to be like Edward Gorey. Like it's kind of- It's pensive and it's honest and it's vulnerable. And that's the thing that I think sticks out to me. But the one that I really would highlight for me that that- hit a chord in two ways was doesn't it feel good um the first i I, what i love about doesn't it feel good is that um there's this idea it seems that what at the first part it seems like uh you know a young woman who is being asked like shouldn't she just be happy that this guy is showing up and ticking off the bare minimum boxes of of, in fact you actually say ticked all the boxes but you know that he, he does the bare minimum things and therefore shouldn't she just go well i'm supposed to be happy as, right and, and settle and as as someone with a fourteen year old daughter at this point, I I thought that was just a that's the kind of message that I want her to understand is that there isn't a bare minimum that you have to accept and you can you can look for something that really makes you happy no matter what that is and then to do that on the second half of it about uh, a person not really maybe being satisfied with with their career or where they're at in life and and feeling like it might be irresponsible to walk away from it that's something that I've experienced in terms of yeah. trying to go after artistic dreams and 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 doing it in older age I, I started comedy when I was 38 and wow. I started my own business at that point and and so that spoke to me a lot in this idea of let's of not settling just because 
there's there's comfort in it and and it will look irresponsible if you do so i thought that was just a super super cool song thank you well i've been stuck in that so many times with both relationships and jobs and and the hardest time is when other people think well you're you guys look so great together though you seem so happy oh well you're you're but are you kidding me you don't want to be a a musician you get to meet you know david bowie like you of course you want to be a musician and you're like eh not really. I kind of want to have a flower store. Like yeah. just because other people might give you the seal of approval doesn't mean you're happy. And and I do when I sing that song and when we wrote the song, we we talked about it being, you know, with respect. You don't just leave a situation irresponsible. I'm very responsible. So you don't just totally leave, but it can feel really stressful. And it's that kind of advice. And it's same in a lot of the other songs. This is the kind of stuff you talk to when you when you run into parents outside of a school or when you talk to a friend. And there are things that you see sometimes written on a post-it, you know, you see it like on Instagram, like a clever phrase, but honestly, those things really do inspire us. I think, you know, you do want to write it on a post-it note and stick it on your mirror because you do wake up the next morning and you forget, oh, right. I need to get out of this relationship because it was really not making me happier. This, this looks great. Everybody's happy. You know, he's, he's taller than me and, uh, he's got a good job. I'm not happy. This isn't what I want. Like you forget that stuff. You just forget that. So I'm so happy that that um, it, it gives you that little reminder. Yeah, I think I think it's great. Just the idea of uh, remembering that it's okay to be inspired to do other things. Um, and it's okay to go after those things and, and uh, not settle. So I love it. I've got a job. It pays really well. Shouldn't I be happy? good on paper and everyone's proud i got what i wanted so why am i feeling this way am i living the dream or just falling asleep it's so hard to leave but it's getting much harder to stay well you can walk away walk away walk away doesn't it feel good until you take a step then you'll never know yeah you can walk away walk away walk away and doesn't it feel good until you take a step then Wayne haven't um, heard from you much Wayne's like going Wayne's listening to the record right now no, I was already listening. Wayne, I love, Wayne, I Wayne, love, Wayne shines in the second half of yeah, uh, all I, of our I get caught listening. I get caught listening to the interviews. That's why it's great when Jeff is here because he asks all the questions that I wish I would have asked. Uh, um, but no, I love the wide range of emotion on the record. Like like you said, it's like being a human being. I, I really love This Is My Life. It I mean, it makes me like run around the house singing into a trophy. I mean, I'm just like, it's, it's so it just it's that kind of like Katrina in the waves, you know, walking on sunshine. You can't just help but sing it. That's crazy. You said that because when I made the record with my friends, I was saying to them, I want these songs to travel with you throughout the day. Kind of like when you listen to and I literally would say walking on sunshine by Katrina in the waves. You know, you like you you happen to listen to it. It comes on a playlist. I don't know if anyone like I haven't like listened to it on purpose <laughs> for a while. But like but when you do hear it, you feel like you're like. It changes your whole emotional landscape. It's so weird. And I was like, I want these songs to be with us like that. They don't all have to be upbeat and happy, but I want them to be like that. And so it's funny that you raised that exact song. Um, 
And that song is funny too, because for me, I reference um, the monkeys in there. I don't know if you'll be able to hear it. You might now if you hear it, but in the chorus, I really wanted, I wanted the verses to feel like the band Spoon. I love Spoon. Just that really tight, like kind of like, you know, they always have that, like something's about to happen, uh, suspense, um, tight, but but robust suspense. (laughs) And then it bursts into these choruses, which I, I was, my the, my co-producer, I think, was getting a little uh, nutso with me having this reference. But I was getting obs- – I'm obsessed with the monkeys. Um, uh, Randy Sc- Scouse Git, this song called Randy, Randy Scouse Git, and they have this chorus. And it's just everything super compressed and c- compressed in the, the hi-hats and the cymbals are all like swishing around sounding. And it just sounds like mayhem, almost like something out of like the Muppets, like animal playing drums or, or the song um, – by Fleetwood Mac Tusk. You know how it just has this kind of like everything falling apart. Um, So I really, really wanted to sound like that monkey song, Randy Scouse get. Um, So if if you ever hear that song, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. And what I love is you reference the monkeys. And that's the reason that David Bowie had to change his name was because of David Jones. Oh, David Jones was so cute. (laughs) But the other song I loved is most of all, because I love that it's, um, I love when you take, like you have a whole, you have a, a certain amount of things to say and the measure is still the same size, but you'll, so you speed up and try to and jam it in there. And it oh, gives yeah. it this, it, it gives it this, I don't know, this whimsical, I mean, it makes it seem funny, but yet the song is about missing somebody. And so there's a serious part to it, but yet it's also, it's not too serious. It's, it's, it's also fun. Thank you so much. Well, I wrote that with a guy named Kevin Rhodes, KS Rhodes. We wrote that and the song Wonder, which is the last song. We'd gotten together to write kind of a, a classic standard song because I thought I was going to maybe do a classic standards type of record. Um, and we wrote the song Wonder, which does sound like an old timey song. And we wrote most of all together. And and I love that because I'm sort of obsessed with the um, quotidien, like the very daily, everyday kind of stuff, like a tuna fish sandwich or like a you know the, the kind of those details that are in the song most of all and it, it's 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 it is that weird humor like you can laugh when you're at a hospital coming to visit somebody who's very very sick but you want to joke around about the bad jello or i don't know there's just something in those daily items that that i appreciate that that this again and and again that's a big message in a lot of my albums not just this one that the the small things are important you know the small things are the things that make up your life i had a song called um on my album, Feel What You Feel, called I Was Here. And I want people to recognize that you don't have to have a big famous life. You know, like your grandmother's dining room table chairs and uh, that little phrase that your father always says and the notebook that you loved in fifth grade, all those things make up your life. Like that's okay. That That's special. You don't want the small things to get in the way, but you still want like all those small things. That's your history. That's your life, you know? Beautifully said. Beautiful. All right. Well, one All of the right. things, so, sorry, can I just do one one other question? <laughs> sorry. I guess I so. I yes, guess okay. I know. Um, so one of the things I noticed in terms of looking at, I always like to look up things like Setlist FM. And according to Setlist, uh, you have never really been that prolific at touring. Like this never, and, and I wonder, is that because there's a lot of things not on there? Or is that something specific? Because I was at a boat, uh, on a boat with you in Puget Sound 
in what, oh my gosh ninety eight I think or something like that and I can't Whoa. find any record of it I can I can my wife and I were on that and there's no record anywhere so I don't know did you do a lot of shows that wouldn't end up there or? yeah I think a lot I did a lot of radio shows which might not be on there yeah um especially when records came out or when you have a song on the charts especially in the nineties and early two thousands there was a lot of radio shows and promotional mm-hmm. things also I um I made two different TV shows. Um, and during that time I wasn't touring as much once I got, once I realized I needed to stop being so busy all the time, because I'm always doing 7,000 things ever since I was a kid, I needed to slow down so that I could focus on my life, not just my career. Yeah. So I stopped doing as much touring. And then as a mom, I tour a lot for a mom and I tour very little for a musician, you know, like <laughs> for, you know, doing 30 shows or 35 shows or 40 shows in a year. It's a lot to to leave for three days, five days, two days. I don't leave for more than a week unless I'm something really, really like going to Japan or Australia. Yeah. Um. So it's a lot. It's it's and in fact, I was hoping this summer that my kids were going to go to sleepaway camp because I was going to see it as a time where I could actually do like half of the year of shows, like in two weeks, just jam them in. So I, I think that's part of it, and also. The, the TV thing is really, you know, I, I kept having these opportunities like, oh, we'll, we'll shoot a, we'll, we'll shoot a show for Food Network and, and we end up doing 10 episodes and then you're working on it for like a year and you, you aren't touring, but then you think, well, we'll reach more people by being on TV and then we'll have more opportunities. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And so now I'm not in a position where I'm doing t-shirt tours, you know, where you're out for that long list. I call them t-shirt tours where you have that long list on the back of those t-shirts. Um, it just doesn't make sense uh, to do that for me as a mom and definitely not during COVID. But so I just have to pick and choose. And there's certain cities we return to a lot. But again, yeah, there are a lot of things that aren't there, special events, uh, radio shows, things like that. Well, if you ever uh, want to do a backyard show, I've thrown this out a couple of times on Ben's podcast, but I have a, I have a great Santa Clarita Nobody's backyard. Nobody's taking you up. Not yet. Where are you? You're in Santa Cruz? Santa Clarita. Santa Clarita. Santa, yeah. And here's the other thing. Money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, there's a lot of it's it's become an important thing. Like when I make decisions about what I'm yeah. doing or what I'm not doing, we really have to look at the financial side of it because it costs it costs money to to play. You know, to leave my house to get childcare to you know, but to drive to Santa Clarita and play a show if people want to pay money to come back to the backyard, and then we could do it with no sound system because when you get into a sound system, you're talking about oh, my friend's four hundred dollars, six hundred dollar yep. sound system, and then oh, well, it's just a thousand dollars for the guy to come work it, but I want my guy, so maybe he's more like fifteen hundred dollars, you know, like, right. and then like oh, well, I have to, you know, drive there, and and then I'm it's actually you know it's only an hour and a half show, but it takes a day and a half. Because, oh, we're actually doing it at a time where you need to go the night before. You know, it's like it gets into this whole logistical thing. But that's a great idea. I would love to be able to do home concerts. Right now, it would have to be very few people, very far away from each other. Yeah, of course. Um, right. How is that? But I'm doing shows from home. Like I've got I'm, – I'm performing the entire Tales, my Tales record, twice on September the 26th, I think. We're oh, getting the oh. announcement out. And I'm doing one earlier in the day because I have a lot of fans in England. And I'm doing one at six in the evening because I have a lot of fans in the U.S. and in Japan and uh, Australia. So we're doing two full tours and people can support me and pay money to come see me uh, on a sliding scale. And those things have been great um, in addition to all the other free concerts I was doing for a while online. So there's other ways that musicians are getting out there and playing concerts and playing requests and chatting. It's been really, really fun. Yeah, very cool. 
All right. Um, so let's dive into the record that you chose. So tell our listeners what record you chose to revisit. I chose Hunky Dory. And by the way, this is like the worst thing ever to ask me to choose one record. Like <laughs> I spent so many minutes and then I said, you know what? I'm not going to overthink this. I'm just going to go with the one that came to my mind first. And then of course I was like, oh, but I should have done Night at the Opera. Oh, but I should have done Olivia Newton-John, Totally Hot. Oh, but I should have done the Beatles, you know, Sergeant Pepper. Oh, Elton John. I mean, you know, a million records came to mind, but I stuck with David Bowie, Hunky Dory. There you go. I love it. I just listened to Totally Hot this week. I love that record. I actually have the cassette on my desk right now. I'm looking at the cassette tape. Please don't keep me waiting. I won a lot of records, and there were three Olivia Newton-John records included in that record lot. So I've been digging through each of the the records and determining whether or not I'm going to keep them or trade them. That's so funny. My uncle used to have, or my cousin, rather. I think of him as an uncle because he's like that generation. But he had a music magazine in Texas. Um, when I was growing up called Buddy Magazine. And I was a DJ on my high school radio station. And I used to play a lot of local music and rock and new wave and all kind of stuff in the 80s. Um, and he used to give me stacks of promotional records, a lot of them from IRS records. And I used to sit and listen to all of them and pick songs that I thought should go on the radio. And yeah. it's very cool. Very awesome. Which one should go in the trash and which ones look really cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's kind of what I've been doing. I'm totally keeping totally hot, but the what was the one from '85? Oh, I Sol- don't even know. Soul Kiss is that right? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's not not good. I'm not keeping that one. Enough about Olivia Newton John. Let's talk about David Bowie. So, Hunky Dory is the fourth studio album from Bowie. It was released in December '71. First album on RCA Records which uh, would be his label for, I guess, the neck, most of the 70s, right? Which is crazy because I, ha- I own the, D- the CD from RCA Records before Ryko started putting them out. Yeah. Hunky Dory was one of the first CDs I finally broke down and bought when I, when I finally decided I should buy a couple CDs. That was one of the six. And I have the RCA Records one. As well as like multiple copies of vinyl and cassette tapes and a cassette tape of it that I bought in Spain, which they called Apedir de Boca, which I don't know why. <laughs> so how many versions do you own of this? Um, I would say like f- uh, two different CD versions, two different vinyl versions. Oh, three different vinyl because I think I have the reissue kind of mass- remastered. Oh, and I have the remastered CDs. I have like 10 copies of this record. <laughs> I'm, I'm crazy. Here I thought it was bad. I have four, four versions of Rumors. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, All right. Personnel. Rick Wakeman is on piano. Yes. Wayne, this was right after Rick left Straubs. We did an episode with uh, Eric Bazillion of the Hooters. Oh, yeah. I know Eric. And the record he chose did not include Wakeman because he had moved on to Bowie and Yes at that point. Um, And then, of course, the other musicians. You can't talk about this era without talking Mick Ronson. Ah. Genius who we always try to copy when we're making new... I have a record called um, The Holiday Song, and the lyric is, everyone's still sore from the holidays. And it's um, it, it, it's like I tried to make it a Bowie song. It's like a bluesy song, and I, I asked my guitar player at the time, Johnny Polanski, please to play like Mick Ronson. <laughs> I think a lot of people have said, hey, can you play like Mick? <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, my God. Uh, album was co-produced by Bowie and Ken Scott. Scott was the engineer on 
man who sold the world. Um, but, uh, for this one, he stepped into the producer role. Scott would also co-produce Aladdin Sane and pinups. And of course, rise and fall of Ziggy Sardust. And I got to meet Ken Scott a, b- a bunch of times and I can't Did even you? believe it. Yes. This is, this was his first credit as producer. Yeah. Um, he'd yeah. engineered a ton of huge albums, uh, at Abbey road and Beatles albums. And of course the Bowie and some Elton John and, this was George his first. Harrison. Yeah, he he has a pretty prolific uh, credit list in terms of engineering Great and mixing city. and yeah. Yeah, I really should call him and make him talk, talk to me about things. <laughs> yeah, he, he lives absolutely. in L.A. I think, doesn't he? Well, he used to live across the street from somebody I was dating, and um, and I got introduced to him, and then I was like, wait a minute, that name sounds familiar, and then I look it up, I'm like, what? But then he had moved, but I don't know where he is now. But anyway, we'll find him. Yeah. He's my uh, Facebook t- friend. <laughs> anyway. So so title Hunky Dory comes from... A- oh, by the way, also um, Trevor Boulder, who um, is very weird because he... I found out after he passed, I don't know what I was thinking. He was married to a cousin of mine. No. And I didn't know it. I didn't make the connection until he passed. And I was like, he's not a like super close cousin I see a lot because she lived in England. Um, oh, my God. Again. Yeah. Duh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, you guys know what the term hunky-dory means? Yes. I'm pretty sure that when my dad used to use the term, he was being facetious when he said it, because it was always be like, um, oh, you think everything's hunky-dory, don't you? <laughs> so it's it's supposed to be like everything is right in the world is the slang for that. Yeah, everything's okay. A-okay. Yeah. So I have to ask you guys this because I this this I got from Wikipedia. So I, I'm I'm trying to figure out timeline. It said upon release, Hunky Dory received positive reviews after the commercial breakthrough of his follow up, um, the rise and fall of Siggy Stardust. Hunky Dory then became a commercial success because prior to that, it had failed to chart, and so Hunky Dory then peaked at number three on the UK album chart. And that was supported by the singles Changes in 72 and Life and Mars in 73. So did the number three peak happen after that, Ziggy that's, charted? That's the way I that's the way I read it. That's I get a little fixated like. on the charts, so it's Wikipedia. Okay. All right. Isn't that crazy? Both of those records coming out so close together that that was even possible. But that was the thing in the seventies. Like, like if you look at Elton John, I, yeah, Elton John, Beatles, yeah, they just cranked them out. Beach Boys, all, all of them. They were just cranking records out. Yeah, it's crazy. Um. All right. So Wayne, we talk about uh, the Rolling Stone top five hundred greatest records of all time. All the time. Where do you think this lands? In the top 500, or did you cheat? Oh, did you cheat? I did not cheat. I know that I was looking to see what other records of his were in there, um, but uh, I want to say this was. Uh, I think it was in the in between 100 and 200. I think it's low 100, low like it's it's in the 100s or just above 100s. I think 108. Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's weird too because again, when I thought of David Bowie, I, I literally was like, Ziggy Stardust and Spiders Mars. Like I always have to slur it together, like Saturday Night Live. You know, <laughs> these are albums that I own many copies of, and I'm obsessed, especially with Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. I I like yeah. his other records too, but these are my records. They're so different from oh, each yeah. other, though. 
I that these these if this was my list, this would be like four, five. Like I, there's very few things that I. And in fact, like I've said before, I listen to Hunky Dory every couple of weeks. I never go, I I never go a month without listening to this record. It's it's just so good. I remember reading a book that I had bought before the internet was around. It was like it looked like the album cover. It was as big as an album cover. Also, it was a huge square. I think it was a British magazine, a brig, a British book, and they talked a lot about the space between the songs. You know, like the transitions between the songs and what you hear between the songs. And I always think about that so much, like the transition between the songs. It, they, they're so special on Hunky Dory. I th- yeah. We did uh, recently, you know, the three of us did Damn the Torpedoes uh, with Tom uh, and And the thing that I would compare this to is obviously it's not like that album, but it's a, it's a similar thing where Damn the Torpedoes became, I think, the launching point where their sound really took off. And I feel like the same thing is true here where it's this album that really starts to to build what we what we think of as David Bowie from here on out. I, I, I have to disagree though, oh, okay. because because his albums are so different from album to album. You know, you yeah. do hear that like guitar, and it, it just changes. So even between this and and Ziggy Stardust, like Ziggy Stardust is this like I feel like Hunky Dory happens in someone's home, like in England, and it's like a, an apartment, and there's not a lot of furniture, and it's like the early seventies, although it was probably the late sixties, but. And Ziggy Stardust is like out at the clubs and in these rock clubs and these weird dark places and back alleys. But they, but everything is just so different to me. I guess what what's the same is the different the fact that there's so much variety and it, and things change and he goes through these huge phases. But I do think I do think you can hear Ziggy Stardust being born. That's what in I, a couple songs. That's what I'm. That's yeah. what I'm hearing with it. I'm okay. Hearing, I'm hearing like it feels like he he has figured out uh, a voice that's that's different from the previous albums to this and it's more of the things that i think more people know of of bowie in terms of just voice it's not all of his hits it's it's not all that he definitely reinvents himself all the time but at the same time it sounds it feels to me like the first album where he was he was really really invested in it in a way that he was creating the sound and and he was involved in the production and all of that sort of stuff that that would be uh what he ended up doing later as well Interesting. And I think the Rolling Stone critics, Jeff, probably agree with you because Rise and Fall of Ziggy Sardis is their 35th uh, top top uh, album. So I love they, that record, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we could just switch and talk about that, too. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's so hard to choose. Like, you can't choose. It's not. It's funny, too, because I think of Tom Petty really as establishing a sound. And he definitely had a little bit of a new wave flair. Um, back in the early days, which is what I liked about him, he he felt alternative in some weird way. Um, yeah. Even though he was kind of mainstream rock guy, um, it, it, and and as he got older, his music fit in well with the maturity of, of the production. So, sometimes it would get a little too straight because of Jeff Lynne, who I also love for ELO, but he gets that really weird straight acoustic guitar, which makes it kind of adult contemporary sometimes. That chunk, chunk, chunk. It's like, mm. eh. but anyway, I, I feel like. Like Tom Petty was more of one thing, and it kept getting more honed in. Um, whereas David Bowie, what honed in on him was his ability to go and just do a completely other thing, and just super charismatic and theatrical, theatrical. And has anybody watched the MTV documentary that came out on A and E this week? No. So, so they showed the extended interview of Mark Goodman, the the famous Mark. Oh Goodman, yes. David Bowie interview. And like, that's where I wish that we were in 2020 where we could have these 
really deep conversations where, you know, Bowie just kind of sat there and, and listened to Mark explain the rationale of why MTV wasn't playing black artists. And he just kind of sat there and he's like, let's see where your point is coming from. I don't really agree with it, but, and, and it was just, he just had this charisma about him that just for, for a guy who grew up in the eighties, you know, during the, the, the less let's dance era, that's what I gravitated to. Like Bowie just had this magnetism. Yeah. He's very poised. Like I got to meet him once um, actually at George Martin's studio in England in 1994 or five. And I couldn't believe it. We didn't have a great long conversation and I didn't get to ask him all the questions I wanted to about the Bewley brothers or any of them. Um, We talked about my flight or something, but he's, he, I loved how he um, evolved into this person who, you know, he could have totally fallen apart or become this really like wacky guy, like Iggy pop, you know, but he, he became this very poised, you know, Soho guy, you know, like, but also interesting and then not becoming super elite. Like he almost looked like he was going to become this kind of elite Yoko Ono, uh, Soho type of person, New York city person. But then he, like you said, like he'd have that conversation with, you know, it was very down to earth or he was still like just a working artist his whole life. Yeah. Even though he was kind of fancy. Absolutely. (laughs) Kind of fancy is a great description of Bowie. But you know what I mean? Like he's, he's like, isn't Mick Jagger so fancy? Like he's on a yacht. He's like, but he's still like this crazy rock star. Like he really, he's really like, he's idiosyncratic and he's, he's like a Cheshire cat and he's, but he's got it together. You know, like you, you know, he knows what's going on with his stocks and bonds, but, but like, (laughs) but just like Bowie does, you know, but, but yet I can imagine Bowie disappearing into like an artist studio for the day to like create something, do something. But he's wearing this really nice t-shirt because he's got all new t-shirts in his closet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's jump into the track by track. Uh, as a reminder, our scoring is based on number of songs on the record. Wayne, how many songs on this fantastic record? Eleven. Which means it goes to eleven. You get eleven points. Going to go to eleven. Next uh, favorite song, ten points on down to lowest score of one. And yes, we know Lisa. Before you even say it, it's hard. We, it's we, terrible, we and like five and under is just like laziness. It's just like, fine, just give it a four. I don't care. Just stop asking me. You're going to make me start crying. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, let's kick this off. This is Changes. Changes. Yeah, this is one of Bowie's uh, pivotal songs. Um, did didn't do much on the charts though. Uh, if you look at the Billboard Hot 100 when it f- originally came out in '72, peaked at '66. Looks like it went back into the charts at some point in '75 and peaked at 41. So take that for whatever it's worth. Should we talk about changes? Are we talking about changes? We're talking about changes. I gave change. Do you want me to tell you what I gave it? Or no, you you don't need to know. If if you want. 
My my score was sort of in the middle on it because honestly, the age I was when I learned about Bowie, it was when I was starting to play guitar when it was like in the maybe mid 80s, like 82, 83, 84, maybe 82. It was probably around when Let's Dance was coming out, honestly, um, because that was the popular record. I was in middle of the high school. I had just really started playing guitar a lot. My friends who were guys were in this cover band from another school and they played uh, Ziggy Stardust and they showed me how to play it. And they're like, oh, you're not supposed to play it better than us. Um, <laughs> but but then I like bought Ziggy Stardust and I bought Hunky Dory and I just got hooked on them. But also at the same time, the best of records were coming out for Bowie. So yeah. Changes was one of those songs that kind of was overplayed by the time I even heard the record. Like I already knew it too well. So it, it didn't get equal billing, which is funny. When I put my Tales record out and Stay had already been out, I put Stay at the very end because I'm like, people already know this song. This record's coming out like months after the song's already popular. I don't want it to distract from the rest of the record. And I feel like Changes, although it definitely sets up the record really well, for me, it's hard to listen to the record because that song stands out to me so much because it already existed in this other very, very popular context. Yeah. So score scored a little lower because of overplay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All familiarity right. breeds contempt to some degree. But yeah, like <laughs> I said, my first first rock and roll record, like I've been listening to David Bowie since I was like eight years old. My uncle, my cool uncle came up uh, to visit us. And when he left, he gave me his Changes One Bowie, which was his his first compilation. And the third song on it is Changes. Right. Um, and so I, I, I've been listening to this song since I was eight years old and it's a great song. And I think I, 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 what I found funny or interesting is that I focused on different parts of this song through different parts of my life. Like as when I was younger, I first initially, it's that uh, philosophical question, you know, I, you know, where he says, I, I'm, time may change me, which actually time will change you and you can't do anything about it. You can't do anything to time. And and then there's the obviously the Breakfast Club. Um, actually, it oh, appears yeah. at the beginning of Breakfast Club. Oh, really? It was our, yeah, uh, these children that you spit on as they try to change their world. Our, our valedictorian right. of our high school class referenced it um, yep. in her speech. And so then you, so you're in, and you're in that age where you're you are those children. And so then it, you focus on that. But the first verse is really where I am at, or where I've been at most recently in my life, where you look yourself in the mirror and you ask if if what people see is who you really are and, and there's references to, you know, the things that you've, that you've accomplished and acquired and they don't make you as happy as you assume that they would, no matter whether it's professionally or intellectually, anything you've, you've gained, is it, was it, you know, it was supposed to make you as happy as it could be. And, and it may, it either didn't or it wore off soon. So it's just a very complex song, but I did rate it lower than, and, and what on what on who else's record would changes be the third their third favorite song, <laughs> right or fourth? I think yeah. this is a this is a show stopping album opener though. I mean, I think it's just so, and it and it announces the theme for not only the album compared to what his previous albums were, but also like we talked about already his career in terms of the change is definitely coming. And if you you know buckle up because that's exactly what he's going to do throughout the album and through the rest of his career. This one uh, I know the overplay, but it it transcends overplay for me on this, this particular song. I think it's also strange that it, to me, when I was always listening to it as a kid, it seemed really like a grown up song, almost like a different person was singing this than who was singing the rest of the record. This person was wise. They had this perspective on life. And then you get into the other songs and, and even kooks. It doesn't feel like that to me. This feels more grown up in some weird way. Mm-hmm. 
And it is almost the future of him wearing a suit. I see him wearing a suit in this and the rest of it, he's not wearing a suit, you know, <laughs> he's wearing like his, his cover look album with like, yeah. like some kind of some sort of artist off time. Yes, exactly. But I love and the way it starts situation. too, because it has these real couple of real kind of ominous and somber piano notes. And then all of a sudden it just starts bouncing and just, da-da. yeah, and it just, I'd like, it could only work. I think it works best as the first song especially with that way it starts. It's a great bookend too, because it creates a, a very um, uh, centered and anchored place to go to all these other places from, from which to yeah. go. And I think he, he knew how important this song was as well. I mean, Wayne, you referenced the compilation albums, you know, they were, they were all changes one or changes Bowie or, or what have you. So I think he, he, he recognized how, uh, how important this song was, even though it may have had a little overplay. So well, you can't overplay something that sucks. Well, I guess you can to the point that it nope. sucks, but you get, you're, you get this guy overplayed cause it's a great song. Absolutely. All right. Um, this is my 10 Wayne, your score eight, Jeff, your score nine. And Lisa, we already got <laughs> six. I'm six. six. I also will say one more thing. Changes of, is a funny song because it's very popular, but it's very hard to play. It's a hard cover to play, which makes it unusual. Like it's easy to play Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars. It's easy to play that song. But to play Changes, it's unusual. It's really hard. Now that you bring that up, I don't think I've ever heard any any artist cover this. It's really hard. It's complicated. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next song is Oh You Pretty Things. Oh. going to defer to you for this because um i know this is one of your top scores yeah and i I, it's almost uh it's like there's two parts of it i break the song into two pieces because the chorus always reminds me of i have three daughters they're now they're now all in their 30s but at one time they were all basically in middle school um so they were all at this this really young age and they were starting to listen to music and they were starting to drive their mamas and their papas crazy and so there's that that when he because the the chorus is very Beatlesque, it's not it's it's completely different from the verse, and and it's those lines of you know driving your mom and pop is insane and um, better make way for the homo superior, which always I, I always looked at that in the sense of that generation of these these young ladies um, being the next you know people who make decisions and the people who make things happen and and that that swagger that that those that that generation or when you're at that point in your generational, you know, peak where you're, you just got all that swagger, you know, you're someday you're going to rule the world and, and you're starting to kind of, kind of find out how that's going to, how that's going to happen. The, the verses are these weird dystopian, you know, this, 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 and whether it's another, like an alien race coming to take over or whether it's just another part of this actual race who thinks that they're more advanced than everybody else and is going to start to take over the, 
the, the verses are, has this very dystopian, this very 1984 feel to it, which is so hard to reconcile with the chorus sometimes. I just, I just kind of figured you gave it a higher score because a line like the earth is a bitch seems like a Wayne <laughs> mantra. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so he's, much. To he's song. not even disagreeing. With no, I, I love, I love Bowie uh, lyrics. I mean, and sometimes it's, they're so easy to, to see. And then sometimes you just shake your head and you go, I just don't, I think he's the coolest person who ever lived. And I sometimes will read stuff and go, I'm just not cool enough to figure out what that means. <laughs> I had that same reaction with a lot on this album where I, I started to deep dive into some of it and it was so complex that I was like, I'm out. I'm just going to enjoy it and I'm going to understand the things I understand and let the other things go and just let them wash over me and enjoy them. Yeah, you should see my notes. It says, ask Wayne what this means. Ask Wayne <laughs> what this means. So, yeah. I love this song so much. Oh my gosh. I the, it's the, Well, everybody loves the melody, right? You can't yeah. help it. But I also, I... I I always saw it as kind of like you're behind the scenes in his world. It's kind of like the freaks versus the squares in a way. You know, it's like the he's a freak, not in the bad way, but in the way he's just like he's an artist. He's like in his loft. He's doing his thing. He's drinking his coffee. He's seeing the world. He's talking to us about it. And he's one of the pretty things. Like he's one of the people who's driving your mamas and pop. He like he's like a grown up version of that. He's like, yeah, we we are always going to drive our parents insane. We're always going to be these like artsy freaks, like in the best of ways. We're always going to see the world in a different way, and uh, you know, you're always going to have this threat of the man, not not in a sexist way, but you know, like the man, the man, yeah. just like the 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 law, the the regular people. You're going to have that threat, and that's how I've always seen it. Um, but I also do like having that kind of weird glimmer of of there is a lot of talk about thin white duke and homo sapiens and homo superior and a weird thing about that as as well, like something in there about white supremacy and the danger of it. I, there's just something in there that makes you think about that too, I think. Um, you know, what what's happening in the dark in these scary societies and he grew up in a time closer to Nazis and things like that, both physically right. and time-wise. And there's there's just something in there about that, not just the freaks versus the squares, but um, these secret societies of kind of sort of evil people that you got to watch out for. There's definitely a jackbooted thugs at the door kind of a feel to some of it. And like I say, there's a, the line that don't kid yourself, they belong to you. They're the start of the coming race. It's like, it's like, just like I said, it's not, it's you be careful or you'll become one of them. I mean, you, yeah. you don't, don't, <laughs> Watch out! Don't don't let your guard down, or next thing you know, these you know, which is also so weird because at the time wasn't he totally out of it, Bowie? Like wasn't he around here? Maybe after Ziggy Stardust, he was totally on drugs. Like he doesn't even remember things. But this is so poetic and wise, and he's going to an ex- he he's going to a place where he's trying to make it hard to understand. I think also, you know, I think he has something he's saying, but he's trying to hide it slightly so it's not obvious. Yeah. That oh, takes a lot of brains and time and, yeah. and crafting yeah. Yeah. and all those outfits and it, it's a full act, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. All right. One last thing before we get to scores, anybody listen to the Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits version? No, but I love Peter Noon. Um, no. Then you probably don't want to listen <laughs> to that version. Is it, is it weird and like. It's, it's totally made into adult contemporary song. 
Uh, I always, I, I do think it is a cabaret song though. Yeah. And I had suggested Betty Buckley that she should sing this song and oh. I don't think she's done it yet, but I think she'd do, be great with some of these songs. I could see that. Uh, Peter did change the line that I referenced Wayne from, oh, yeah. um, to earth as a beast. Ah, that's not, it, that's not bad. Made it radio friendly. Earth so. is a bitch. Yeah. Finished yeah. our news. Yeah. All right. Let's get to ours. Um, Wayne. 10. Jeff. This is where I start apologizing for scores. This is this is a hard album outside of a couple of songs, so it's a seven, but it, it feels like it should be higher than that. I really love this song. Uh, you don't apologize for sevens. It's all good. I know. I know. And mine's a nine because I have a couple of other songs that I put in front of it, one of which is an unusual song to put in front of it, but I did. So it, it was a nine. All good. And this is my nine as well. All right. Next song, Eight Line Poem. Of you, mobile spins to its collision. Puts her head between and this is where I I begin apologizing for my scores. Uh, when, uh, Jeff and I were having a conversation before this, and and uh, I was like, I just didn't connect with this song. <laughs> I know. And I didn't either. I think um, this is because I think I had read something about uh, Bule Brothers being a song that he wrote just to be, you know, just trying because Americans always want to figure out what something means. And I and then later he had also said that, you know, he referenced his his schizophrenic half brother. And this is the one that I think is his I am the walrus, the one that he wrote just so that people just to see what people come up with, because I'm. It is exactly eight lines, and I love. I I there's don't let the cat in the baby's room is the only thing I, I can come up with. <laughs> and don't put I, uh, cactuses and cats are not supposed to be in the baby's room. No. I I'm laughing because I am looking at the lyrics. I don't even know what the lyrics are. No. I, in my mind, it's a much better song when you don't know what he's saying. <laughs> Maybe. Like Maybe. in my mind, I have a tone and I have a place and it feels like when I lived in New York City before college and, it, and New York still felt like the 70s, even though it was the late 80s and the windows are open and it's humid outside and it, it's, uh, there's not, again, not a lot of furniture. You've got maybe like a folding chair and a card table and some old kitchen with a double burner stove. Like it's a place. But when I look at the lyrics now, I'm laughing because I have no idea what he's talking about. I didn't, I, I didn't know this is what he was. I, I didn't know. I, I never thought about what he was trying to say in this song before. Yeah. Yeah. I just never thought about it, <laughs> which is weird. I've been listening to it for like a million years. <laughs> Probably because we were focusing too much on the really great guitar playing in this. Oh song. my gosh. It's so in the space, the space in the song. Oh my gosh. It's really nicely stark and poetic, and the music in it is really beautiful in this one. This one, actually, there's a couple of songs on this album that um, felt like they might might have been a companion piece with the Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection. That oh, we yeah. Did. And this mm-hmm. one feels like it could have been at home in that same musical space, um, the guitar and, and that on this, uh, other than it being about a cat. But yeah, it's still, a, it's a, it's got a very cool atmosphere to it. Yeah. Is it about a cat or is it about a cactus? It's hard to say. I think it's about a cat. I think is it's- Clara the cat? Yeah. So they tactful mm. cactus by, I never knew it was tactful cactus by your window. 
I don't know what I thought it was now. Clara puts her head between her paws. Will all the cacti find a home? I'm just saying. I, I don't know. Maybe it is about the cactus and less about <laughs> the cat. But I, I thought saying. it was a song about a cat. <laughs> it's funny. Now it sounds like he's a father of a young baby and he's in the in the room, you know, when it's so early and you can't believe you're up that early. And it's well, uh, that's what it sounds like to me now. Because they open shops up down on the west side. Like they're just, everything's just opening up and you're up early in the morning. And it sounds like that, you know. Wow! Look, we we all have our own. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly and, why I and, think he and did. And none of them, and none of them are right, and none of them are wrong, and none of them and are the same. Yeah, I think that's exactly <laughs> what he was trying to do. Very yeah. surreal. All right, Lisa, your score on this? Oh, uh, my score on this was five. It was a five. And, and Jeff, five. Wayne, a uh, two. And this was my two, or yeah, was it my two? No, this was my one. <laughs> This was my one. I flip-flop between two songs. We'll talk about that as we go. <laughs> All right. Uh, next song, Life on Mars. Wow. She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on singles Fighting in the dance hall Oh, man, look at those gay men go It's the And I'm just going to throw this out there because this doesn't happen very often. We, it, this happened on our Glenn Phillips episode, Jeff, where everybody was in agreement that In Your Eyes was the best song on So. We all agreed that this is the best song. It's the best song. Yeah, and it's magical. It's absolutely magical. It's so good. It's operatic. It's beautiful. Just a great, great song. It's crazy. I mean, and again, you get the, the politics you don't exactly know what he's talking about. Every time you listen to it, you think of different things. I do, at least. Even after I read it, I feel like I've read about what it's about, and I still have my own ideas. He, um, I, I found a quote from him that I liked about it, because I, I think about different things when I listen to it, too. But it says, Bowie summed up the song as a sensitive young girl's reaction to the media. In 1997, he added, I think she finds herself dis- disappointed with, with reality that although she's living in the doldrums of reality, she's being told that there's a far greater life somewhere and she's bitterly disappointed that she doesn't have access to it. Which is, uh, then you, when you read the lyrics, you're like, that is super cool because that's, you know, that's all the things, it, it's all these things that would go by on a, on a, a movie screen or a TV screen and, and about, you know, better things somewhere else, but you're stuck in this, in this world. The line that always sticks with me the most, though, even with that, like knowing that it's about things aren't what you expect them to be. And I love the line, but the film is a saddening bore because I wrote it 10 times or more. You know, it's like that's life. That's the wisdom there. You know, it it, it, it always always gets me. And and that that comfort of things aren't perfect and you're going to try and try again, either as a writer or the actual thing that you wrote. Um, that's how life is. And, and, and there's like a comfort level of it, just like in changes, there's this kind of like this, this wise person sitting back and saying, well, this is what life is like, but it's weird. Cause it's this young British guy, you know, 
It's not like this old man. It's not like, you know. And it's this thoughtful and it was written as a parody. It was, it was written as a parody of Sinatra's my way, right? which is so it's just like, who else could write a parody of another song? Something that they're actually kind of annoyed that that's how it went. And that Paul Anka's version is the one that became this thing. And it ends up being so profound on its own. And you don't need that reference at all to have any meaning for it, which is really cool. That's very punk. That's very, yeah, it is. it's very punk. This one also has, this one has some really amazing covers. Um, there's an amazing instrumental cover by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross uh, that they did for the Watchmen score, and it's really powerful in the show. Oh, wow. um, that is super, super co- cool in in the show itself. Um, the So George cover in Life Aquatic in Portuguese. Yeah. Uh, and it's super cool. Um, and then also Lucas Nelson and Promise of the Real do a cover that is something I would not have expected. Them I love to Lucas. Pull off. I, I love will. Who's the gal who did it? That was my favorite, favorite one. Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang. No, 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 no. Um, a young gal. I think Bowie might have. Did Bowie sing on it? I don't know. Hmm. Uh, let me see. I'm gonna. There were so many up. covers. I didn't get through them all this week. <laughs> this is. Uh, we haven't even heard yeah. from you on this Aurora. One. Aurora does the most beautiful cover of it. I will look that one up too. Aurora. That's what we love at this house. This is possibly maybe my favorite song. Of all of all songs, um, and I this is the song that also makes this. I mean, puts Bowie into this godlike, omnipotent being who can see the future. Because when you read these lyrics, this is as relevant, if not more relevant, today than it was in 1971. This the idea of of the law. Well, not just the lawman beating up the wrong guy, but this. This sensationalist, um, you know, every, everybody gets their 15 minutes. You know, Lennon's on sale again. The workers have struck for fame. You know, everybody wants to be famous. And and with all and this all this reality mixing with with you know the silver screen, it all being, you know, media manipulated. It it just I, I just every time and I just and also the way it it the musically the way it flows is it starts and just continues to gradually, gradually build until it gets to that, to that first, to the chorus. And then it just, just explodes into this epic, with this epic nature. I just, this is one of the best songs ever written. The way you describe it was with the, about being an omnipotent being or whatever is exactly how it's used in, in the TV series Watchmen too. It it fits that. It's like a, a visualization of exactly what you just described, which is really cool. It does feel really related to the song Five Years also, doesn't it? Hmm. That, you know, uh, the wrong men beating up the wrong guy and the, uh, you know, the cops, uh, a cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest and a queer threw up at the side of that. Uh, it, it does have that kind of the world is upside down feeling. Well, Mickey Mouse has grown up to be a cow. Every, nothing's what it seems to be. You don't, 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 don't believe your eyes. I mean, it's, but I it's the freakiest show. And I like the idea of life on, is there life on Mars? As it being like, where's the next stage? Like, you know, we let's, we're going to tell this story as far away as we can with this work. This, it just feels like getting bigger and bigger until it, it takes over this world and it goes on to the next one until, you know. Um, also it's the, um, the freakiest show that, that kind of lyric again, brings him down to this cool guy. Who's just this, you know, taking it all with a grain of salt at the same time. So good. All right. Um, I just want to hear you guys 
do the scores. Wayne, your score? 11. Jeff? 11. Lisa? 11. Me too. 11. All Aww. right. Next song, Kooks. Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow So take a chance With a couple of kooks Hung up on romancing Will you stay in a lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow so take a chance with a couple of kooks hung up on romancing. And from all the things I read, this song was essentially written for Bowie's soon-to-be-born child. Or, uh, yeah, or, or just new born. Son. Just born, I thought. Just born, was it thought. just born? Yeah. Okay. He just born. Okay. And since uh, we're all parents on this podcast episode, so when you guys heard this song originally way back in the day. Does this song have a different meaning now? Absolutely. Than when we heard I, this that's as teenagers? Written yes. in my notes. I, I, I thought this was quirky filler back, you know, several, several years ago. And then, and as, and reading the lyrics and, and, and listening to the song as a father, this, I wish I had another 10 because this is the sweetest thing. I mean, from the coolest guy, this is a, this, a sweet, and I, I, the melody is even very uh, children's television, you know, Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street, sing-along feel to it. But some of, just some of the lines about, you know, I mean, just the first part where he's like, you know, there, will you stay? If you say you won't be sorry, like, you know, like it's his choice to, to come into this family and describing that they're not normal. We're not like everybody else's parents. But I absolutely, my favorite part is don't pick fights with bullies or the cads. Cause I'm not much cop at punching other people's dads. Cause the way that comes off is if you're going to, if you're going to start fights, make it worth it. Cause I'm no good at this, but I got your back kid. Yeah. I think the song gave me hope when I was a kid that there were cool, regular people out there. I grew up in a pretty conservative, not my folks, but in Dallas in the 1980s, it was a very conservative time, you know, preppies versus punks. It was like the preppies. And, um, and so when I heard this, I was like, Oh, there's like, there's kind of these ageless, cool people around. And and those are the people that I met when I went off to live in New York and went to college and met all these other kind of similar like-minded people. So I, to me, it gave me hope when I was a kid. And I, and I did like the variety it added to the album. This wouldn't have scored, this wouldn't have scored as high for me years and years ago. It, it's the same thing Wayne was saying. It, reading it as a father, seeing kind of goofy, the goofy side of Bowie talking to his son and that glimpse of him as a dad is so charming. The lyrics are sweet and sentimental. It's just, uh, it, to me, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with Lisa at the beginning about her kids' music not really being necessarily kids' music. To me, this is his kids' song that, um, you know, really just gives us this glimpse at him as a dad. And, and I just, I found it super, super charming as I was, as really diving into it and and uh, scoring it at this point. It just, it seems really, really vulnerable and 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 uh, charming. Yeah. yeah. Jeff, what's your score on this? Eight. Wayne? A seven. <laughs> Lisa? I feel bad. Mine's two. But again, it was like, it's two because there's some other songs that are, are ahead of it. No worries. All right. This is my seven. All right. Next song, Quicksand. 
since I have the benefit of seeing everyone scores ahead of time. Jeff, you like this a little more than the rest of us. Yeah, I, I love this song. This is the only one that uh, uh, would have been my second. Um, it just, again, this feels like a really vulnerable admission about not having the answers, of being stuck in your own mind and, and your own thoughts, letting your brain be your own worst enemy. Uh, it, this one reminds me of how I feel every time I have insomnia. That's what that, this one does for me. Um, is just your mind rattles off all these things and the things you don't know. I don't know all of what he's specifically trying to say in all of his references. And it's, it's really out of all of them. It's the one song that I'd love to sit down with him and talk about because I am intrigued what, what all he's talking about, but at its core, it just seems to be about not being sure and not being interested in being fed surety through the means that like anyone else would maybe want to offer it to you, whether it's, it's um, faith and religion or whatever else. And it just, this one absolutely gets me. Cool. Again on the song, I, I, for me, when I was a kid, it made me want to look at the history. I was like, kind of like people do with Hamilton. Now I was like, who are these people? Who's Crowley? Who's, you know, who are these people? What are they talking about? I still had no idea, but I did feel like it was kind of a life and death and philosophical song and weirdly very influential in my own music. Cause I thought, Oh, you're supposed to write these really like uh, symbolic kind of songs about humankind, like rush or something, but this is the Bowie version. Uh, and, and I also love at the end when he says, if I don't explain what you ought to know, you can tell me all about it on the next Bardot. Like he goes from being this very philosophical, you know, you, you don't even know what he's talking about type of guy. And then all of a sudden he's just like kind of fancy Euro kind of guy. He's like, just tell me, you know, he, he, just throwing off what this whole song that he just said, just being <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's like the, the fan, what is that called? Not the fancy class, you know, like there's the working class, there's the, you know, like kind of like those, arist, almost like, yeah, like the bourgeois or like the almost the aristocratic, the people on the f- fanciest deck of the boat. Um, it reminds me of that, you know, like there's something very serious and then just like, uh, you know, I'm going to go get a champagne. I'll see you later, which is so intriguing to me. Wayne, what do you got on this one? I, and- I love I love that he he kind of changes his delivery because he because I do feel like Jeff said there's this is a struggle of with all of it like just he has an uninspired struggling to to I mean because he is wrapped up in his head and there's the lines of good and evil are blurred um, he takes a couple of shots at organized religion um, in uh, which I love and but. The best line of all is that I, the one that I absolutely love is when he says, I'm the twisted name on Garbo's eyes. Now, when, because that's not Greta Garbo, that's the spy, uh, Juan Pujo Garcia. So the, so the name on his eye would be a reflection, like you would be with the Nazis. That's who he was spying on, like being part of that, you know, everything that's bad. I mean, like it, it's just, it, but it's, you, it's deep. And then Churchill's lies, like he's British. Church, the good guys aren't always as good as they seem. Um, and then the, the line about I'm not a prophet or Stone Age man. I'm just a mortal with potential of a Superman. I mean, he's he's not he's not any better than us. He's not any different than us. He just, but he has that. But he has just we all have the same potential to be to be better, to be great. And his voice is just powerful in this song to me. Really, really powerful. Let's get some scores. This is my six. Wayne? Five. Jeff? This is 10. This is my second favorite. Lisa? Four. All right. 
Fill your heart is next. Oh, happiness is happening. Dragons have been bled. Gentleness is everywhere. Fear is just in your head. Only in your head. Fear is in your head. Only in your head. So forget your head and you'll be free. The writing's on the wall. And all you need to know about this song is that it was also covered by Tiny Tim. And all you need to know about this is it was written by Paul Williams. I felt like it inspired Tiny Tim. That's what it feels like a little bit. Yeah. But that's a rubber ducky at the end of the song, right? I don't. It is very Paul Williams, isn't it? uh, Paul Paul Williams wrote it, which I, which is funny is he was everywhere in the seventies and eighties. I thought he died and a, and I couldn't have been the only one. No, there he's was, my friend. There was, like, a he's docu- my friend. there was a documentary called Paul Williams Still Alive. So I clearly wasn't the only person that. that he's the head of ASCAP. He's the I, head of ASCAP. Yeah. But I love how this song feels like trying to cleanse your mind from the previous song. Like how how bogged down and and struggling that person was and up in his own head. This song is is trying feels like it's trying to get out of that it's it's the it's the answer the answer to that i I think it's saying the same thing that we talked about about your your album title lisa simple trick to happiness i think he's talking about it as if everything is easy and bright and bubbly and he's kind of poking fun at the simple and cliche notions and mocking that easy reassurance but the the voice kind of grates on me a little bit i I find it very HR puff and stuff. And um but I but I totally imagine him in that kind of groovy sixties, early seventies. Again, he's in that same apartment with the cactus. And it's the many sides of David Bowie. One minute he's like this serious, philosophical, deep brooding guy. And on the other hand, he's like just getting some tea in his kitchen and he's kind of has some random song on while the mobile's spinning in the air and the cat's there. And that's I just like the way it fills out the record. And I think that this this personifies Bowie. I mean, let's talk about the all the various Bowie incarnations that he's had throughout his his lifetime. Like he was okay with being Ziggy Zardust, and then he was okay with being you know the 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 suit wearing guy during the early eighties and uh, hanging out with with Trent Reznor and you know kind of going through that. Uh, uh, I'm afraid of Americans phase. And so it's cool. Maybe my, my score doesn't reflect that though. Um, this is my two Wayne. Well, this is my one. Cause this is not a David Bowie song. And I, I'm, I was trying to think of besides pinups, which was a cover album. He doesn't, he doesn't generally do a lot of. He covers. did on Ziggy. What's this? His Ziggy's cover is a, uh, what's his Ziggy Stardust cover is. One of the blues songs. Well, they're all blues songs, but um, he. Oh, now it's playing it instead of showing it. Uh, the song. It ain't easy. He didn't write it. Ain't easy. Ron Davis. He. It ain't easy to get to heaven when you're going down. So I, I like that though. I like that that he throws that in there, and it still kind of feels like him. Yeah. Jeff, what's your score? This is my one. All right, and Lynn, Lisa. Three. Next song, Andy Warhol. Put you all inside my show. Andy Warhol looks a scream. Have him on my wall. Andy Warhol, silver 
Love Andy Warhol. Get us started then. I love Andy Warhol. Because of this, I ended up buying an Andy Warhol print. I got obsessed with Andy Warhol. I met Andy Warhol. I love the way he captures Andy Warhol's personality in this. Apparently, Andy Warhol hated the song, but um, he just, he captures it so perfectly. And as a songwriter, the ability to to do that in a song, um, I love it. And I love his laugh at the very beginning of the song. Yes. Uh, I just, it, I, I was like, I have a crush on David Bowie because of his laugh. It just kills me. All of the studio banter at the front is really yeah. great. It's really good. The pronunciation, yeah. the mispronunciation of, of Andy Warhol and him correcting him. And, and, and it's funny. It's funny. That's Ken yeah. Scott mispronouncing. Yep. It. yep. That's, yeah. that's what I'm saying. He Bowie's correcting him on what it's supposed to be. And, and he's like, are we ready to go? And he's like, yeah, we've been rolling kind of thing. So like, and they use it really well and they affect it nicely. And, and how great is Mick Ronson on this song? Oh, yeah, that flamenco uh, style guitar is awesome. And that wasn't him playing a flamenco guitar. That was him on an acoustic yeah. guitar. It sounds great. It's just a great, it, it adds to that variety of the album. And I just, I, I have a real affinity for Andy Warhol and that whole art. Uh, I just, I like that he played it for Warhol. And because of Andy's, you know, whole hum <laughs> yes. reaction, it left Bowie kind of wondering, like, did he no like idea. it or did he not like it? And I love that. I love that idea, that vulnerability of you're playing, you're huge and you're playing a song for someone else that's pretty huge and an icon about them. And then they have like a meh kind of reaction to it. That must be really uh, tough. Wayne, you got anything before we get scores? Yeah, just lyrically, um, it. It just feels like Warhol, like everything that, you know, we've, that, that I've seen, you know, for, in, in media, it just, that's absolutely, you know, particularly that, that, that last verse, uh, time up is fast asleep part. But I, the mention of the peephole in the brain is all I kept thinking is I just, I would have loved a peephole into D- David Bowie's, you know, into his mind and to see what was going on in there. Still the one person I, I if I ever could have met anybody in, in, in history, I, that would be the guy. All right. Wayne, what's your score? A four. Jeff. Uh, I, this is a four for me too. I just, I ran out of bigger numbers. Yeah, me too. Lisa. Seven. All right. And this is my three and I hate my score for it. It also um, looks like I have 5% battery on my computer and I don't see my charger. Oh no. Uh Oh, All right, guys. All right. uh, Next is Song for Bob Dylan. I, I don't love the song. <laughs> I don't love the song. I, it goes on and on forever, kind of like a Bob Dylan song. I, I was never like a huge Bob Dylan fan. Um, don't be mad at me. Um, and I, I liked that again, just like he tried to paint a portrait of Andy Warhol. I liked that he that he the craft of painting a portrait, sort of of Bob Dylan or referencing Bob Dylan. 
Um, I've tried to do it a lot. After listening to Bowie, I wrote a song about James Taylor years ago when I was in high school because of these songs. I just like the Bowie one better than the than the uh, the Dylan one. And it, like I said, for me, it just goes on forever. I'm like, yeah. I'm always done with it. Uh, very very early on. It's an, it's gotcha. interesting in that he 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 does offer another commentary. It feels like about Dylan not taking an active enough role yeah. in calling out the Vietnam War that a few other artists did at the time, uh, and and it seems like it's a little more of a poke rather than a, an affinity like it is with uh, Warhol. And this is this is the second one for me on the album. That feels oh wow, like- I never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. the brow of a super brain. It's like Wonderwall. It's like well, it's like uh, sorry, it's another song. Never mind. I won't say what it's like. But I love that he's put he's you know calling him a super brain. You know. And this is another one, the second one that feels to me like it would have been kind of at home on Tumbleweed Connection. Like it feels similar to some of the yeah. stuff on there. Yeah, I like how he separated in them into two people and, and is referring to him as Robert Zimmerman talking about. And Dylan is this is clearly the, the, the times the guy who wrote times they are a change in and blowing in the wind and 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 stood for something or, or at least sounded like he stood for something. And he separated him from the person who, you know, singing highway 61 and, and, and not, you know, not actively protesting the Vietnam war. I, I, Interesting. Yeah. So Lisa, this is your least favorite. <laughs> yeah. One. All right. Jeff two. Wayne six. I, I like, you know what I really like about it? I like how the, which what I would call the choruses, they don't sound like Bob Dylan songs. They actually sound more like uh, the band, uh, on their own with Levi Helm, Levon Helm doing it. They had kind of have a real up on oh, Pickle yeah. Creek, you know, the night they drove old Dixie down feel in the chorus. Which is, which is again, a, a tumbleweed connection kind of feel. There's a lot of the, the band on tumbleweed connection. That's that same sort of thing. Yep. Absolutely. And this is my four or Lisa, do we need to pause? Um, I was looking for my charger. I think I'm good. I got 4%. We've got two songs here. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So next song, Queen Bitch. Wayne, get us started. Oh, this is so. This song is. I mean, you. This is one of the songs you hear Ziggy Stardust being born on. And it's funny, as the Lou Reed part. This is supposedly a tribute to Velvet Underground, more so Lou Reed. And once I heard that, I was like, "This is absolutely." I can hear Lou Reed singing this. I mean, he even does something a little nasally with his voice to give it a Lou Reed feel. Um, but I love how even saying that David Bowie is English and that that second verse about, you know, pushing ahead of the dames and the ambassadors and the queen, like he just can't help but be English. But the fir- the third verse, I can just see him laying on a cot in the Chelsea hotel with a heroin totally. hanging out of his arm. He really does capture Lou Reed and what, what Lou Reed, at least to me, uh, feels and sounds like, you know, his, uh, when he's, when he's on. That's a great, and I hear, I hear kind of the beginnings of suffragette city, coming along that's what i'm saying glam all, almost all of glam rock yeah. comes out of this ian hunter and mark boland heard this song and decided to start Absolutely. bands and the killers the killers i feel like have a song one of their popular songs when he gets to the end and he says uh 
uh, and, uh, so I lay down a while and I gaze at my hotel wall. It, that that part of that song, The Killers, I swear they have an exact copy of that in one of their songs. I love this song so much. I think it is the Ziggy Stardust coming out. And it is the, I, I just like the attitude in it. And it's so visual and I, I love it. He's so like sassy and bitchy and like uh, androgynous. And I love the song. All right, um, Lisa, your score? 10. Jeff? Three. I don't have enough <laughs> high numbers left. I just don't have enough high numbers. I love this song, too. It's a great album. That's, yeah. that's where I'm stuck. Your, your scoring makes it hard, Ben. Nine. I know. Sorry. Uh, and this is my eight. And then let's finish this up. Last song. Ha- pr- pronounce it again for me. Bewley. It's I, the Bewley Brothers. Bewley. The Bewley Brothers. You know, Bewley Brothers. Yeah. I, oh my gosh, this song kills me. I am a puzzler and I love trying to figure out what he's talking about. And I loved back in the day trying to read up on what it could be about. And I was in Spain year, a few years after I started listening to this when I was in high school and, and, and the, the cathedral, uh, the cathedral floor, the grim face on the cathedral floor and all that stuff. I just, I could see it. I don't know what he's talking about, but it's, it's in that kind of medieval Spain. Yes. I have no idea, but I love it so much. Um, and it's beautiful. The acoustic guitar, just the chords make me cry. I love it. My notes here say, I don't know what he's talking about. Don't care. And I'm going to guess that this is going to be Wayne's first song that he gets stumped on uh, it's not that i'm stumped though it's because but one thing that put it into context was he has a half brother that suffers uh, from schizophrenia and when i was listening to it over and over and and i don't want to figure it out exactly and i and i think but i do feel from some of the instances feel like you know i think it's from his half brother's perspective i feel like david bowie was the kind of guy who wanted not so much to 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 figure people out, but to, to get inside their head and see what they're seeing just because he was David Bowie and he wanted to see what, you know, he wanted to see different things. And so there's, there's parts about, you know, right. Especially the parts right around where he says the Bewley brothers, there's a, it's, they feel like events that seen through the, the, the eyes of this, of this guy suffering from schizophrenia he, and things they did together. Um, one of them even almost feels like, you know, at church, there's something about the grim face on the cathedral wall, like hit, times they went to church together. There's the, the, the wings and the, the wings that bark flashing the teeth with brass. I, there's, I just, I just felt like he was, it was, he was trying to get inside his, his brother's head and to, to gain some sort of perspective on how he saw life. And especially because I think towards the end that that line about he's chameleon, comedian, Corinthian and character almost feels like talking about David Bowie. Hmm. 
I, talking I, about himself. Okay. I love the storytelling of this one, even if I don't know what it's about. Uh, it's <laughs> right. just an epic song. It's got a little bit of a Pink Floyd quality too. At the oh, that's and, a good one. You know, it's got that that thing to it, but also it's just very, very Bowie. It's just so cool. Such a cool song. Yeah. All right, let's get scores. Lisa, eight. Jeff, six. Wayne, ah, uh, three. I'm out of big scores. <laughs> and this is my five. All right. So this is where I usually say, did we cover everything? Did we miss anything? I think we covered everything. I think we did as best as we can. Yeah, but I'm I'm guessing we missed some things, but <laughs> that's okay. Of course right? we did. Yeah. With the way that some of these are written, you're definitely missing stuff. But and that's okay. That's I think okay. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Leave a little mystery. We all need a little mystery in our lives. All right. Um, so based off of our scores, here's our top five. Any guesses on number one? <laughs> yes. No. There's Life not. on Mars. There's not. No guesses. Um, oh, You Pretty Things. Average score, 8.75. Changes, 8.25 is our third. Followed by Queen Bitch, 7.5. And then last but not least, to round out our top five is Quicksand. Okay. That's nice. There there are songs that glue the album together that, you know, when you look at them by themselves, it's hard to give them a high number per se, but. Yeah. It's a great album. Yeah. As a record, as a whole, it's, 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 it's like, it is a, it's the, the product is, you know, more important than the sum of its parts. It's, it's just all together. It's, it's immense. It's great. album. I'm just glad we finally did a Bowie episode, Wayne. Oh. Now I just have to do Ziggy Stardust because I'm like, oh, but Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> I'll have you back on. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. My battery is saying goodbye. <laughs> well, let's then let's wrap this up. So because we have to have you help us with the outro part. So here we go. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. I would tell you to go to a live show, but you know the drill on that. So check out one of their live uh, streaming events. Buy a T-shirt of the band, buy a record, visit a record store, because you can, you can still do that. Just mask up when you do it, all right? We are Records Revisited, and we are out. 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 All right. Sorry, what I said it first. <laughs>